so when we talk about the cell membrane, uh, it's a uh, phospholipid bilayer. So we have the back-to-back -back phospholipids. So they're hydrophilic on the outside, they're hydrophobic on the inside, and then that's kind of mixed in with a bunch of cholesterol molecules, so it makes kind of a fluid cell membrane. Uh, and that membrane is importantly going to be selectively permeable. So it means that some things can get through it and some things can't. And there's a few properties that kind of lead to that. The, the one big one is that the, that the membrane is, again, in the middle, largely lipid. It's fat. So um, basically, a lot of the more fat-soluble type things are going to be able to essentially dissolve and move right through that plasma membrane. Um, some very small non-fat-soluble things, like water and a few other th uh, molecules, can move through if they're very small. But for the most part, anything that's bigger and not fat-soluble is not going to be able to move through. So a, a lot of your proteins, for example, and polar molecules are not going to be able to easily move through that membrane, which means we need other mechanisms in place to move those things in and out of the cell uh, as necessary. So when we talk about transport mechanisms in and out of a cell, we basically have two categories. We have passive transport and active transport. And the biggest, most important uh, difference between those is that passive transport does not require ATP. It doesn't require the input of energy in order to move something across the membrane. Active transport, by definition, does. Okay? And as I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I believe we talked about towards the end of last week, the difference there would be um, chemicals are always moving from an area of high concentration to low concentration. Is that familiar? Okay, so they're always naturally moving from an area uh, of high concentration to low concentration. So if, for example, they are something that's small enough or soluble in the membrane and they are able to move freely across that lipid, uh, that, that uh, cell membrane, if there's a whole bunch of it outside the cell and there's a small amount of it inside the cell, it's going to want to move in and vice versa. If there's a ton of it inside the cell and it can freely move through and there's not very much of it outside, that is a gradient. That's a concentration gradient and it's going to automatically tend to move from an area of high to low. There are examples of when we need to do the opposite uh, and, and move something from where it's uh, more uh, less concentrated to an area where it's already in greater concentration. And if that's the case, it will not do that naturally. So we have to have a mechanism in place to add energy in the form of ATP to push it in the other direction of how you would normally expect it to move. Okay, so passive, no energy input, active, need energy. Okay, so that takes us to the terms diffusion and osmosis. So again, diffusion means your molecules in solution are moving from area of high concentration to low concentration. There are some things that can uh, change the, the rate at which that, that happens. Um, if you have a really, really significant gradient, so a really high concentration of, uh, of molecules on, on one end of a, of a membrane and a very low concentration on the other, it will tend to move at a greater rate than if it's a closer uh, um, a difference in, in concentration. Also, as we talked a little bit about last week, how I said if you want um, molecules to move faster and reactions to occur in a lab, you stick a Bunsen burner under it, right? Um, we can do that same thing to a small degree in the body. We can't obviously put an open flame, but we can jack up the temperature just a little bit, uh, and that will increase the rate of movement as well. All right, so um, 
let's give a quick visual example of how that might look. And this is basically what's on the uh, what's on the the board there at the bottom. So I'll blow that up. Uh, but essentially, um, let's say you have let's call it a beaker, right? You have a beaker, uh, and then down the middle you have uh, a membrane. Okay, and on both sides you're gonna it's gonna be full of water. We're gonna make solutions on both sides, and water is gonna be our solvent, and we're gonna have some solutes dissolved within it. So the key thing here is that that membrane is going to be selectively permeable, okay? So now that is, we'll have to give that a definition, but it implies that not necessarily everything can just cross it. Some things can and some things can't cross it. So let's say that we've got um, on the left side, we've got uh, Six blue dots, all kind of mixed up in that solution. And on the right side, we've got, that doesn't matter, they're the same number, but let's say we have six red dots. Okay, now we say, okay, go. Let it do what it's gonna do. All right, now, assuming that, uh, that this membrane is, is, uh, is permeable, to red dots, the red dots will tend to start moving. And as far as the red is in, the key idea here is that the red dots and the blue dots don't care about each other. They don't give a crap what the conversation or what the co concentration of, of, of the other chemical is. So the analogy here would be, you know, when we're talking about um, gas exchange in the lungs and blood and things like that, you know, you have oxygen moving, you have carbon dioxide moving, you got other stuff moving around, and the concentrations of each of them follow their own gradient. Okay? They don't care about each other. They don't really influence each other in that, in that way as far as how they move. So we say, okay, go, let it do what it's going to do. Um, what's going to happen is as long as, uh, as long as this membrane in the middle is permeable to red dots, they're going to start moving that way because as far as red dots are concerned, they have a high concentration over here and a very low concentration on the left side. That makes sense? Okay, there's none. So the, the reality of how this works is that they're going to kind of move back and forth. They don't just kind of go and just sit there. They're always in motion. But the tendency, if you give it enough time, is going to be this. It's going to be that it will eventually meet some kind of equilibrium. Right? And as far as the red dots are concerned, that's now an equilibrium because you have an even concentration of red dots per volume of water on either side of that membrane. Does that make sense so far? Now, if the, if the barrier here is only permeable to red dots, that is exactly how this will finish. Okay? Because if this membrane is not permeable to blue dots, they can't cross it. It doesn't matter what the concentration difference is. Uh, it only, you know, it, they're only going to be able to move across it if the barrier allows them to. So now let's say that, uh, again, now the barrier is permeable to blue dots also. Okay, so same, similar kind of thing is going to happen. Eventually, given enough time, they will spread out as much as they can. They'll move from the area where they're highly concentrated on the left to where they were 
lesser concentrated on the right until they get a relative equilibrium. So they get about the same concentration on both sides. And that's the natural movement of how, uh, of how diffusion is going to work. Okay? Now, that takes us to the next term, which is osmosis. So osmosis is very much like diffusion. It's movement of something. In this case, it's specifically movement of water molecules. Okay? So water molecules can cross certain membranes. Um, they can also be, uh, more easily move across membranes if there are specific proteins uh, built into the membrane to allow water to move through. And those do exist. Uh, they're called aquaporins. Literally translates to water hole. It's a pore that water can, can move through freely. And it will do so according to its own concentration gradient. Okay? So, some people get tripped up with this sometimes uh, because, let's say, again, we've got our, our beaker. And let's say that the blue is going to represent the, the water level here. Okay? So the water runs up to about that high in the beaker. So this is all water down here. And we're going to, again, have solutions uh, on both sides of that membrane. So let's say we've got our red dots over here. Let's say there's know, six. And we'll use purple this time. Let's say we have uh, six purple dots over here. All right. Uh, now, if what we were concerned is if we if we were talking about uh, movement of solutes, right, the, the little things dissolved in the solution, the dots, right, um, and I said, okay, now the, uh, the the membrane again, like last example, is permeable to certain dots. Go, they'll move according to their concentration gradient. But we can have a situation instead. So let's pretend this is what we have now, that. <laughs> this membrane in the middle is no longer permeable to dots. Okay? It's the holes, let's say, are just too small and the dots are too big. They just can't fit through. But the membrane happens to be permeable to water. Okay? Water is really small and it can fit through the little holes in this membrane. Okay? So we can start to, to look at the movement of water across the membrane instead. And the water will follow the same pattern that the, the solutes did. And the solutes will, given the opportunity, move from an area of high <coughs> concentration to low concentration, right? Um, now, water will do the same, but it will, you have to remember that when water moves with osmosis, it moves from an area of high water concentration to an area of low water concentration, okay? So, so you're thinking about what the, the solution as a whole is here. So um, right now, uh, if you said, okay, this barrier is permeable to water, and you said go, not much of anything would happen. Your water would pass back and forth, because it can, but there's no real driving force to, uh, uh, to attract water to one side or the other, because as far as water is concerned, uh, there are pretty even concentrations of stuff, right? So overall solutes, the stuff dissolved in the water on both sides. Okay? Now, if we had a different situation, let's say we had uh, like this. So we had a whole bunch more dots on the, on the uh, left side <coughs> than the right. And again, the dots are the solutes. They're the things that are dissolved in the solution, the solvent being the water. In this example, again, the, uh, the, the membrane in the middle is only permeable to water. 
Okay, now go. Now what happens? Which way does the water move, or does it? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so if you're if you're thinking about if you're thinking about concentrations of of, uh, of a solution, you're generally talking about you know how much stuff is dissolved in the water, how much how many how much solute is dissolved in the solvent, and if that's the question, then this is the much more concentrated solution. Okay, but that's not really the question here because what we're talking about is the movement of water. So water is now because there is less stuff dissolved in the solution over here, there are less solutes, that's a relatively greater concentration of water on this side. Does that make sense? Okay, so water will now have the tendency to move, in this example, from the right side of the glass across that membrane to the left side of the glass. And this is kind of a classic experiment that we use to demonstrate, uh, and what ends up happening is the water level goes down on the right, and it goes up on the left accordingly. Does that visual sort of make sense? Okay, so again, that's osmosis, and when you're talking about the movement of water, you have to make sure that you kind of get that, that organization in your head that you're thinking about concentrations of water. And so this takes us to an important concept, and the reason I'm beating this to death a little bit is because when we get into um, uh, fluids in the body in other classes, we'll talk about um, uh, compartments in the body like the blood right, blood vessels, and stuff called the interstitial space, so the fluid between cells, uh, and other bodily, bodily fluids, fluid moves around, okay, so water moves from compartment to compartment, and it follows where, it basically follows concentration gradients, and so it will move <coughs> where it's attracted to. So we have this idea of something called osmotic pressure. So osmotic pressure is basically um, the attractive force to draw water towards a particular place, okay? So in this example over here, the osmotic pressure was higher on the left because there was more stuff, more solutes dissolved in that solution. And so the net effect is that it attracts water from right to left. We're good with that, okay? We do the same thing in our body, right? We do the same thing uh, for example, really, really importantly, in our blood. We have certain things that are going to be um, made and kept in blood vessels to keep that attractive force, to keep water from leaving the blood vessels. And in that example, in the body, we use mostly uh, protein called albumin. So you're going to see this idea of osmotic pressure a number of times before I'm done with you guys in the next couple of years. Yeah? No, no. So when we talk about um, fluids, there's basically two kinds of pressures. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but it's okay. Um, osmotic pressure is that. It's the attractive force to pull water into a particular place down its concentration gradient. The other one we're concerned with, and this is where blood pressure, how blood pressure is measured, is hydrostatic pressure. So hydrostatic is the physical pressure of the fluid inside the, the vessel that it's in. So the best way I could illustrate that would be uh, if you have a hose, right? and you turn on the hose and so just a little bit so that the water is kind of like trickling out. There's a pressure that that water inside the hose exerts right, on the walls of the hose from the inside. That's, os that's a hydrostatic pressure and it's got a particular value and it dribbles out the end of the hose. Now you crank open the tap and you now have water shooting out the end of the hose. 
that's because it's at a greater pressure. And if you were to measure that pressure inside the hose, that hydrostatic pressure, it would be much higher. And that's a better way to visualize uh, what blood pressure would be like. And that matters too, but again, much, much later. Okay, so um, that takes us to some terms. Uh, and you're, essentially these terms at the bottom here in bold, you're comparing two different solutions. So the terms isosmotic, right? Uh, what does iso mean? Equal, the same, right? Hyperosmotic means, hyper means higher than, greater than, and hypoosmotic or hypoosmotic means lesser than. So the, by definition here, you have to be comparing two different solutions. So for example, uh, over here, we had a solution that was more concentrated. Uh, and so it was the one on the left side before the water moved was hyperosmotic compared to the one on the right, which was hypoosmotic. If I, had, uh, if I had them back to our original example, and there were six dots and six dots and the same volume of water on each side, they compared to each other would be iso isosmotic. Good. Very good. And this matters, again, because of cells, which is exactly what we're talking about. So um, because in, in most examples, or in most cases, water can cross cell membranes. Okay, So if the concentrations uh, um, of solutes inside or outside cells is, is out of whack, it's vastly off, there's a huge concentration gradient, that can have implications uh, and it can change uh, water movement and it can be really detrimental because we want to, in our cells, keep a regular normal volume of water. So the examples down here would be, uh, let's say, um, and, and for, um, for, the, for the time being, we can essentially... Um, Okay. Think uh, we use different terms here: isotonic, hypertonic, and hypotonic. This relates to whether a cell is going to uh, shrink or swell. But those terms, the iso, hyper, and hypo, are the same terms that we saw on the previous slide there. Okay, relating to concentration. So let's say um, you have a cell, right? Uh, and so let's say again you have our beaker of water. Oh, let's draw some water that and uh, in the water you're going to have some solutes okay and we have a cell and in the cell we're going to have some solutes okay now if oops if you take that cell so if it's the cell sorry if the if the concentration of the solutes inside that cell is the same as the concentration of the water that you're about to drop that cell into, then what happens? Well, assuming water is able to go through that cell membrane, you drop the cell in, and water will move. Okay? It naturally has a tendency to move, but it will move in and out of that cell at an equal rate, so that there is no net gain or loss of water from that cell. Okay? If, however, we take that, that cell and we drop it into a hypertonic hyper solution. So a solution down here that is much higher concentrated in solutes than what's inside the cell. What's going to happen? Well, the water... Go ahead. So it's going to drop the water out of the cell. Exactly, exactly. So now because water can freely move, 
water will, you'll now have a, a membrane, right, a, a selectively permeable, mem permeable membrane of this cell in that solution. The water inside the cell will say, hey, relatively speaking, there's less water outside the cell. It's a really concentrated solution. So the water is going to move out. And that's what this second diagram down here is showing, right, is that uh, that cell is actually shrinking, okay, because the water is being pulled out. Third example, uh, sorry, uh, which is actually on the left here, third example, is you take this cell and you have a cell where there's, say, lots and lots of stuff inside, and you drop it into a solution that is hypotonic, so not a lot of stuff, okay, but lots of water. You drop it in, again, water's free to move, what happens? Water is attracted to go inside the cell to try to dilute down the concentration of all the stuff inside the cell. And what can happen is if that if that's, uh, force is strong enough, that cell can actually burst. Okay? So when a cell ruptures or bursts, it's called lysis. You're going to see that term a lot. Okay? Lysis. That idea makes sense? Again, this is all predicated on the, on the idea that... Uh, that uh, those particular molecules, in this case water, are able to move across those membranes. Okay. Oops. Let's watch this. Or not. Diffusion is the net movement of molecules down a concentration gradient. This process allows small molecules, such as oxygen and carbon dioxide, to cross the plasma membrane. Most polar molecules, such as sugars and proteins, cannot freely cross this lipid membrane. Although water molecules are polar, they are small enough to pass through the membrane freely. This special case of diffusion that involves the movement of water molecules across a membrane is called osmosis. If a molecule, such as urea, is added to one side of a membrane, it will not be able to diffuse across the membrane because it is both large and polar. Because of its polar nature, it will interact with other polar molecules, such as the water. This interaction reduces the number of free water molecules on the right-hand side. With fewer free water molecules on the right-hand side, there is now a net movement of water molecules down their concentration gradient to the side with the urea molecules. Because more water molecules are moving into this area than are leaving, the water level on the right side will rise. If the osmotic concentrations of two solutions are equal, the solutions are isotonic. However, when the solutions have unequal osmotic concentrations, the solution with the higher concentration of solutes is hypertonic, and the solution with the lower concentration of solutes is hypotonic. All right. Okay. Now, um, there are a few subcategories of how we can move things across membranes. Um, I'm going to make this really easy for us because I already know what's on the test. And <laughs> wink, wink, uh, we don't need to know the difference between facilitated diffusion and media transport. Okay? I do need you to tell me before we move on 
what passive membrane transport means, though. Passive membrane transport implies it does not require the use input of energy in the form of ATP. Good. Okay. So active membrane transport, like I said, there's a bunch of different kinds of active, uh, active transport. The common theme with active transport generally means that, uh, well, the, 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 the definitive theme with active transport is it requires the input of energy in the form of ATP to, have, to create the movement or to allow the movement of those molecules across the membrane. Often what that means is that you're moving something against its concentration gradient. So, for example, the, the, one of the most classic examples of this in, in cells is the sodium-potassium pump. So um, the details of this pump don't really matter to us just yet, okay? So let's not get too in-depth here. But what I can tell you is that in most cells, um, inside of the cell, there's going to be a relatively high concentration of potassium compared to outside of the cell. And in most bodily fluids, uh, blood and interstitial fluid included, um, the, 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 uh, the greatest, the, sorry, the, the solute with the greatest concentration is sodium. And there's usually uh, a relatively higher amount of sodium in the fluids around the cells compared to the fluid inside the cells. Right? So the tendency would be, in those examples, for sodium to want to move into cells and potassium to want to move out. But what the sodium-potassium pump is doing is the exact opposite of that. We're spending ATP, and we're essentially exchanging three sodiums, kicking them out of the cell, where it's already highly concentrated, and bringing in two potassiums into the cell, where it's already highly concentrated. And the reason that we're doing that is something that we're going to see later on when we talk about how nerves work. Okay? But essentially, we are intentionally putting energy into the system to maintain electrical and concentration gradients on other sides of the cells. So there is a reason for it. I'm not going to go any further. Okay? We're going to get to that in a few weeks. Okay. Um, so we can also do something called vesicular transport. So vesicular transport basically means you're creating a vesicle. So what a, a vesicle is, is essentially it's a pinched off portion of the membrane that now floats as an independent uh, encapsulated uh, um, entity. Okay? So uh, with, uh, when you're creating a vesicle, you can essentially, well, we'll see some, uh, some examples of how we can create them inside the cell later. Uh, but when you're talking about interacting with the membrane of the outside of the cell, we have two basic ideas. We can do endocytosis or exocytosis. What does endo means into and exo means out? So basically what we're saying here is uh, we, can, we can bring something into the cell, that's endocytosis, or we can kick something out of the cell, that's exocytosis. And in both examples, basically what happens is well, here, um, the subcategories of those are phagocytosis. Phago means eating, okay? Uh, cyte, by the way, means cell. And pinocytosis, which means drinking, okay? So take the phagocytosis that's over here on the left. So you have some substance. Let's, let's say it's a protein. It's a large protein, and it wants to get into the cell. And it's way too big. There's no pores. There's no transporters that are going to allow this protein to get into the cell. So what we do is we say, okay, well, we're going to do, uh, we're going to phagocytize this, this piece of protein. Okay? So it's basically going to push its way into the membrane. 
Uh, it's called invagination, right? And then basically it pushes its way in and then it gets enveloped in a piece of the cell membrane that breaks off and now uh, essentially creates a, this vesicle. So it's a free-floating um, uh, um, uh, entity that is a small piece of membrane that's enveloping what just came into the cell. And we want to do that in a lot of cases because it allows some protection. It not only lets stuff into the cell, but it, now it's enveloped. So we maybe want to interact with that in some way, like put some enzymes in there and break it down or something like that. And we'll see how that works later today. The alternative is pinocytosis, again, which is uh, also uh, a form of endocytosis in this example, bringing it into the cell. And in this case, we don't have one big molecule to bring in. We have a whole bunch of little molecules. And we do the same thing. The, uh, part of the membrane kind of pinches off and folds in towards the cell and brings in some water with those smaller molecules. So both are endocytosis. Phagocytosis over here, pinocytosis over here. The same thing can happen the other way, right? We can send something out of the cell and in doing so we essentially pinch off a piece of the membrane to send it out in a vesicle. Um, now the takeaway from this is all vesicular transports, all of this pinching off of the membrane and creating vesicles, whether it's in, out, phago, pino, it all requires energy. So this is a form of active transport. It needs ATP. Okay? Um, you're going to see those terms uh, a whole bunch of times later on. Phagocytosis is particularly important when we talk about say the immune system. We have cells that go around the body and phagocytize junk, right? So it, it, we, it, they chew up foreign bacteria and broken down cells and debris and stuff we want to get rid of. We have immune cells that their job is to eat up that junk. Okay? All right. So <laughs> this next portion of this unit is, uh, is fairly straightforward. Um, it's on the components of the inside of a cell, of a general cell. So if you've taken any, quite frankly, high school biology before, this will be very straightforward. Um, I'm going to point out the things that are most important, uh, and we're going to gloss over some other things that are wink, wink, not so important for maybe next week. All right? So first, uh, the cytoplasm. So the cytoplasm is basically um, all the stuff that's inside of a cell, uh, but that is not the nucleus. So basically we have in a basic cell, we've got the cell membrane, got the nucleus. The cytoplasm is basically everything else. Okay, So it's going to be made up of the cytosol, which is the fluid component, which is mostly water. Uh, it's going to have a cytoskeleton, which means it's like a support structure. Uh, inclusions, which are other things that are dissolved or, or, or stored in that cytoplasm space and then organelles. And the organelles are the other thing we're going to talk about today in very, very basic uh, forms. So again, cytosol, largely made of water, plus all the other small molecules uh, that are dissolved in it. It's basically, it's a big solution. Okay, uh, cytoskeleton. Um, cytoskeleton, the, the, uh, the, the, the visual here would be, it's like a scaffolding. So inside the cell has this framework that's made of protein. And it's essentially, it creates a, um, a structural framework scaffolding for the inside of the cell that gives it uh, form and structure and shape. Okay, so that not all cells are just 
you know, floppy bags of goo. Um, that'll also include some other, um, some other smaller structures uh, like microfilaments, which are going to be uh, contractile structures. And contractile is something that we'll see in more greater detail when we talk about the muscular system, but basically it means a protein that can shorten and create force. That's it for this slide. Uh, let's talk about the nucleus. Okay, so the nucleus is a very important part of the, uh, of the cell, of course, um, as are the rest of the organelles. Um, let's talk about the nucleus uh, first. So the nucleus is special in the cell because it has its own membrane. Okay, so it's got, uh, it's, it's it can be, it's usually depicted as centrally located, but it doesn't matter where it is. Um, it has its own membrane that surrounds it. Um, and there are basically three parts we can break that into. Uh, the nucleoplasm, the nucleolus, and the nuclear envelope. So the, um, the nuclear envelope is the membrane that envelops the, uh, the, the entirety of the nucleus. Okay? There is a concentrated ball of stuff in the very middle, so inside the nucleus. That's called the nucleolus. That's this in pink right here. So the nuclear envelope on the outside, the nucleolus inside, and then everything in between those two things is the nucleoplasm. The analogy here is, of course, right? this is the cytoplasm of the cell. Right? This is the nucleus. The nucleus has nucleoplasm. All right? Now, the, of course, the, 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 this, the nucleus does a, a number of really important things. The first and foremost thing to remember is, of course, this is where our DNA is found. So our DNA is located, or at least the vast majority of it, in the nucleus. Uh, and it's also going to be responsible for making some important things called RNA. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, the brief, brief, brief overview for now of, uh, of some of, of uh, composition of the DNA within the nucleus. So we have seen already, and we're going to see again later today, uh, some of the chemical makeup of DNA. We said it's basically, it's this double helix shaped large long molecule. All right, now um, the reality is that how it really exists is in kind of segments. And you take long, long, long strands of DNA, all right, and then you start winding it together. And you take that DNA and then you wrap it around proteins, and you take that DNA wrapped around proteins, and then you wrap it around itself, and then we get these larger structures that we can actually visualize during a very particular part of the cell cycle called chromosomes. Okay? And really, um, a chromosome, we, when we think of a chromosome, we usually draw it as this kind of X shape, right? Like so. Right? Now, if that is a chromosome, each one of those components, this and this, are a chromatid. Okay. Um, how many pairs of chromosomes do you have that make up the entirety of your DNA? How many? Uh, 23 pairs. Exactly. So you're going to have 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, right? You got uh, one of each one of those 23 from mom and one from dad, which means you have 23 pairs. Again, in the genetics unit, we'll go into some more detail on that. Okay. Let's talk about ribosomes. <laughs> ribosome, most important thing to remember is this is where we make proteins. 
So uh, if you remember from previously, uh, proteins are so important. Proteins are basically um, the basis of anything that's going to have any kind of significant function in the body. It's what gives us structure, it's what gives us function, it's what you know, creates our enzymes. Um, this is basically uh, how we structure and design and build stuff, is by making <coughs> proteins. All right. And ultimately, you know, when we talk about things like, you know, your DNA is the blueprint for you. The DNA is your genetic code. It, it's, it's, it tells your body how to build you and what to do and tells what the cells to do and how, tells the cells how to specialize and all this stuff. Ultimately, how DNA works and how it is able to do that is we take DNA as a code, a blueprint. We read it. And using ribosomes that read that code, they build proteins. So effectively, the whole purpose of DNA is to code for building proteins, all right? And so the ribosomes are where we make that happen, okay? So there's two basic kinds of ribosomes. They can either be free or they can be attached to something. And that something is what's called the endoplasmic reticulum, which is the next, one of the next uh, organelles that we'll see, okay? Uh, now, the... Um, uh, one sec here. Sorry. Um, the the ribosomes are made of little chunks of something called ribosomal RNA, uh, and that ribosomal RNA is actually made in the nucleus, in the little thing in the middle called the nucleolus, and then it leaves the nucleus, uh, and the the ribosomes are going to be active not in the nucleus but out in the cytoplasm. That's the basic takeaway from that. <laughs> Endoplasmic reticulum is next. Endoplasmic reticulum, if you look closely at a cell, um, it's usually going to be closely uh, um, enveloping the, wherever the nucleus is, and it kind of looks like a bunch of flat sacs layered on one another. Um, and the real, real basic idea here is there's two types, the rough endoplasmic reticulum and the smooth endoplasmic reticulum. The rough endoplasmic reticulum looks rough because the surface of it is covered in ribosomes. And what do ribosomes do? Great proteins. Perfect. So, makes a lot of sense. The ribosomes are attached to the outside of the endoplasmic reticulum. The ribosomes make the protein, which gets fed immediately into the endoplasmic reticulum, which modifies those proteins. So it helps them fold and package and move them somewhere else. Okay, it's actually a pretty decent, here, I'm skipped to add two slides to slide 30, but up here at the top, this is depicting uh, ribosomes on top of an endoplasmic reticulum. So you see that these ribosomes are building proteins, which are these little blue chains, and they're going directly into the endoplasmic reticulum as soon as they get built. And in there, they'll fold and mature, and then we'll create a vesicle. So here's a good example of uh, another type of vesicular transport, right? We talked about making a vesicle earlier, but in the context of uh, in or out of a cell. Here, it's out of an organelle. Okay? And we have another type of ER in the plasma reticulum. Uh, it's the smooth. It looks, it's called the smooth ER because it is an endoplasmic reticulum, but under a microscope, it does not look like it's rough, like the rough ER does, because it does not have ribosomes. It doesn't have ribosomes because it's not has nothing to do with uh, with proteins, like the rough ER does. The smooth 
PR manufactures lipids, so it makes fats. We need to build fats for various reasons, and this is where we do it. Okay? Good. All right. Uh, we have another uh, organelle uh, which under a microscope looks kind of similar to the ER. It does kind of look like, again, flattened sacs kind of uh, back and forth on one another. Uh, but it, this one is called the Golgi apparatus. Um, Golgi uh, will make it really simple. Um, it basically takes in proteins and lipids, modifies, and packages them for use elsewhere. So for distribution, maybe secretion out of the cell, uh, maybe for use inside the cell, but basically it's not making anything per se, it's just modifying and packaging them to move them elsewhere. Remember these are big molecules that need often vesicles to move uh, to get across a membrane, or um, there may be fats, and fats are not water soluble. So fats don't just float around in the cytoplasm, they have to be packaged up in vesicles to be able to be moved. Uh, and made uh, uh, water soluble. All right. Um, quite honestly, there's more detail than we need here. Okay. Rough endoplasmic so ribosomes make proteins. Rough endoplasmic reticulum modifies proteins. Smooth endoplasmic reticulum makes lipids. Golgi apparatus modifies packages both. That's it. Okay. Next is lysosomes. A lysosome is um, a small vesicle, okay? so an encapsula a membrane encapsulated uh, um, uh, um, uh, body that contains chemicals. Okay? Now, the, uh, part of the reasoning here is the chemicals that it contains are often um, powerful, right? metabolically active. Enzymes, for example, that can break stuff down. And they're things that you often don't want to just release free, freely into the cytoplasm of a cell because they'll just create damage. So instead, we need them because we, there are certain things that we bring into the cell, for example, that we need to break down, but we don't want to just freely release these powerful enzymes. So we package them up in a lysosome, and then that lysosome will fuse with another vesicle. So let's take that example from earlier, right? We talked about endocytosis. So some bringing something into the cell, pinching off the, the membrane to make a small vesicle to bring something inside. So if you remember back, this here, the, the way it's drawn is a whole bunch of little molecules with some water. It's being pinched off to create a vesicle. What kind of, uh, what kind of uh, movement is that? What kind of vesicular transport is that? Penocytosis, good, cell drinking. So little molecules, bunch of water. The same thing could occur with phagocytosis, it's just taking in something bigger. But both of them are endocytosis, making a vesicle coming into the cell here, which means that they do or don't require energy. They do. Whenever you're pinching off the, whenever, whenever you're pinching off the membrane with either endo or exocytosis, it needs ATP. Okay, good. <clears throat> now, the, the visual here is helpful. <clears throat> we bring something into the cell, and then maybe we need to process it in some way, or break it down, or deactivate it, or do something to it. 
Okay? So what we want to do is not do that freely in the open in the cytoplasm where it could cause damage to the cell. So we take that vesicle and we have a lysosome that's got these enzymes and chemicals in it and we bind the lysosome. It fuses with the vesicle and then breaks it all down within the protected encapsulated membrane of that vesicle. Make sense? So lysosomes are for enzymes and chemicals for digestion breakdown. Mitochondria. Everyone knows what the mitochondria do? Make ATP. Moving on. Uh, cilia. On, honestly, guys, the, this part of the test is, is very straightforward. I don't need to waste more time than we need. Uh, cilia. Um, cilia are uh, little hair-like projections that are on the outside of a cell. Um, they have some interesting little uh, parts to them because they're contractile, so they have proteins that are able to contract and have them move. But the basic gist of, of cilia is that they're able to essentially move and move substances across cell surfaces. So I'll give you an example of, of where that works. Um, we have lining parts of the respiratory tract, like the trachea. You have types of cells that are ciliated. So all around the trachea, if you look closely under a microscope, you see these microscopic little cilia on them. And the purpose is because um, the lower respiratory tract down in the lungs is supposed to be sterile. Okay? There shouldn't be any bacteria down there. There shouldn't be debris because it can cause irritation to the, you know, the alveoli. So we need to get rid of that stuff. And part of the mechanism of how we get rid of it is through cilia. So basically they'll help kind of work it up and uh, brush it across the, the, the membrane of the cells with these cilia and work it in a direction to move it, in this case, up and out. Okay, a flagella looks kind of like a, like cilia, but much bigger and more substantial. The best visual is it's like a tail. Okay, so a flagella is contractile. It basically can can uh, contract and change shape and act like a tail and wave for the function of motility. So to take a cell and to move it through a through a fluid. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime you're going to have contraction, you're going to uh, uh, you're going to need ATP. Yeah. Um, so best example in the body would of course be sperm cells. Okay. They need a tail to help them move uh, as they try to work find their way towards the egg. Microvilli. So microvilli, people sometimes confuse with cilia. They're different. Or cilia are little hairs. They're really fine, thin, hair-like projections. Uh, microvilli, uh, microvillus, or many microvilli, uh, are about you know, one-tenth of the size or less of a cilia, but they're essentially extensions of the cell membrane. So rather than have just a flat cell membrane like this, instead you're going to have it do this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the basic idea behind that is that dramatically increases the surface area. Okay? So if you have a cell that its job is to either um, absorb or secrete stuff, right, then you're going to want lots and lots of surface area. And so we see these kinds of cells, for example, uh, in lining the gut. Right? When in the GI tract, where the purpose of the gut is to absorb food. So we break it down, digestion, and then we have to absorb it from the gut into the bloodstream. And so that process is sped up significantly if you have 
uh, a lot more surface area. Make sense? Perfect. Okay. Uh, before we get into the last section of this uh, of this unit, let's take a break from now until quarter after. Come back. We'll talk uh, some DNA, and then we'll move on to uh, the next unit. Okay. So the the basics that were involved in that process were transcription and translation and building a protein out of amino acids. That's the the real the real guts of, of what it is that we uh, that we need to know for our purposes here. Okay, so you have the DNA in the nucleus that carries the genetic code. Um, you basically take that DNA, you unwind it, you open it up, you build a messenger RNA, a single strand, a messenger RNA. It's going to match one of those strands of DNA. It will leave the nucleus, go out, and be fed through kind of like a ticker tape fed through that, uh, that ribosome, and as it goes through, it's going to read three bases in a, uh, at a time, uh, which will correspond with this other thing to happen where, I'm sorry, that process is called translation. It's translating the mRNA that's been built. Uh, and then the transfer RNAs, those weird little T-shaped things, come in one at a time and bring one amino acid. And that's the purpose here, is that we're bringing one amino acid at a time and <coughs> binding it to the next amino acid with what are called peptide bonds. So you string amino acids all in a row. We call that a polypeptide, which makes sense, right? Poly many, peptide, peptide bonds. You take that long strand of polypeptide made out of amino acids and you fold it. And again, this is all done uh, based on the chemical composition of what the amino acids do and then it's influenced by the endoplasmic reticulum, et cetera. You fold it, and you fold it, and you fold it, and then you end up with a 3D uh, structure of a protein that is going to interact and, uh, and do whatever it is that it's supposed to do, whether that's um, you know, a pigment or a, or a scaffolding or a contractile protein or an enzyme or whatever, okay? Uh, so, again, transcription, make the mRNA, translation, feed that mRNA through the ribosomes, to make a protein. Uh, I'm going to skip through this rather quickly. Uh, we are not responsible for initiation, elongation, termination. So that means this. You can cross that slide right off if you like. Number 40. Again, translation. Basics, you're taking that mRNA, feeding it through a ribosome in order to build uh, a protein. There's your visual. Again, the visual of feeding that mRNA through the ribosome. And effectively, again, reiteration that in the process of DNA in the nucleus to mRNA to building a protein, the DNA effectively acts as the control center of the cell. So it, it, it's, it effectively codes for everything that you want to happen in a cell by the production of proteins. And the proteins are either the end goal of what you want to build, or you build a protein and then the protein does something else. And I know I'm being vague, this is intentional. Okay. All right. Uh, the, the one important, the, the probably two important things in this slide, the one would be that every single cell in your body, with the exception of germ cells, which are sperm and egg cells, with the exception of those, every single other cell is going to have your entire genome, all of your DNA. 
Okay? Every single cell has all your DNA. But, as I think we mentioned the first week, all the cells in your body look a little bit different. Right? A nerve cell looks very much different than a muscle cell, than a skin cell, than a liver cell, than a pick your, pick your cell. And the reason that that is the case is because not all the genes are used, turned on in a particular cell. So control mechanisms are in place to be able to use certain genes, turn them on, turn others off, and essentially within, the, the, um, within each cell it has the capacity to be able to, you know, it has all of the DNA within it, but it's only going to use small chunks of it. Uh, here and there to develop and mature into whatever cell it is that it's supposed to be doing, or it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be, excuse me. Now we can, of course, there, we'll learn more as we go on later, uh, but you can take that basic cell process and manipulate it, right? You can speed it up, you can slow it down, you can tell it to stop, you can tell it to do other things. Um, and so this is under the influence of things like hormones. So hormones will interact with cells. Um, thyroxin is a, is a great example, right? Thyroxin is thyroid hormone. Uh, it's kind of usually referred to as um, the major driving hormone that drives your metabolic rate. So the rate at which the chemical reactions occur in the body. You may think of this as, a, as a, on, a, on, a, uh, on a gross scale of someone who is hyperthyroid, right? So their thyroid gland is hyperactive. Um, they're usually anxious and hyperactive and they don't sleep very well and they're very thin because their metabolic rate is up, 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 versus someone who's hypothyroid is the opposite. They're a little more lethargic, they gain weight, they're, they're fatigued, those kinds of things. And again, that's a very gross overall uh, example, but it speaks to what I'm trying to get at is that control mechanisms from the outside can dial up or dial down or manipulate the mechanisms that are going on inside the cell. <coughs> All right, uh, this, mitosis and meiosis. So we are actually going to put this off until we, uh, until we get to the genetics section, which is actually not even in this class. I believe it's in anatomy two. Whenever we get to genetics, we'll talk about mitosis and meiosis. It'll make more sense then, okay? Cross it off. That means you cross this one off too. Uh, and this one. And this one. And this one. And that's it. Simple, simple. Yeah. Can you just so transcription is the beginning of the process when the DNA is <coughs> transferred into RNA? Yeah. The yeah, so the transcription is essentially you're transcribing the code in the oh, DNA by making a, a matching strand of RNA. We get all those so uh, all those slides are crossed off. Questions? Okay. I know it's not comfortable when we have to speed through things like that, uh, but again, there's a reason for it. All that stuff, or the what stuff that's important, we'll get to at a later date. All right. So that is the material for test one. Okay. We're going to get into microbiology now, uh, but this will not show up on a test. You'll, you'll, I'm assuming I haven't written it yet, but you'll get questions about this stuff on your next online quiz, uh, but this won't show up on a unit test until test two. Good? Perfect. <clears throat> the other thing would be, there, if you look in the syllabus, and I think I explained this in week one, there is no corresponding unit uh, chapter, excuse me, for microbiology in the McKinley textbook. 
Uh, there's one small little unit of 22.1 has some very basic stuff, uh, but it's not something that's covered by this textbook, but it's something that our class needs to cover. So um, the slides for this have come from a textbook called Gould's Pathophysiology. Um, this is an earlier edition of the textbook that you will eventually use in our patho one and two classes. So if you eventually have me again for patho, uh, you will actually see a very, very similar set of slides again. So it should be a nice, easy review when we get to that point. All right. <coughs> Here we go. So microbiology, right? It means we're talking about small living organisms. So microorganisms. So there's a handful of categories we're going to kind of cover and get the basics of today. So we're talking about small living things that's, uh, that are, that are um, microscopic. Now the basic, the, the, the typical categories we're going to cover are uh, bacteria, fungi, and protozoa. Uh, we're also going to touch on viruses, although I should mention off the top that we'll see why this is, but uh, viruses are not technically living organisms. They're not cells. They don't meet the requisite um, uh, re the, uh, definition of a living organism. They're obligate parasites. So they, um, they basically have to introduce their DNA or RNA into a living cell and make it do the work for it. So they're not technically life forms, but we will talk about it because they're pathogenic in a lot of cases and they cause disease. So we'll talk about it. Um, same thing goes for we'll briefly discuss uh, something called prions, uh, which again are pathogenic. They cause disease, but they're not living organisms. They're actually a form of a misfolded protein. And very briefly again today, we'll also cover um, helminths, worms, okay, which are parasites. And as you'll see, there's some pretty disgusting pictures that will indicate to you, if you've looked ahead, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that they are not really microorganisms in the sense that the mature adult form are very much visual, vis uh, visible to the naked eye, okay? But, the, but they, have, they exist in stages, uh, like an egg stage, where it's very, very, very small. But since they're pathogenic, we'll talk about them. And it's usually, well, you'll see. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, so um, the, I've been using that word, right, pathogenic. So let's make sure we're understanding what that means. Pathogenic means it's, uh, it's something that can cause disease. So when we're talking about an infection, right, it can cause, uh, it can cause a, a damage to another living organism. Um, and we'll discuss I mean, that, those kinds of things at length in our, in our pathology classes. Um, there are many, 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 many organisms that you'll see that are non-pathogenic. Okay, which means that they don't cause disease. So don't, I don't want you to take away from today's discussion that you know, bacteria is bad, because that's simply not the case, right? Um, and as we'll see, there are, um, uh, as we'll see, we'll talk about this more in, in anatomy two in the digestive system in particular, but there are lots and lots of examples of how bacteria is not only not bad, it's actually very important for us. Um, so the example of our um, sort normal flora. So flora means living things. Our normal flora basically means that you have bacteria living on you and inside you. If you were to, to look, take a um, look at your, you know, the surface of your skin with a microscope, you would see that you're teeming with bacteria, okay, all over the place. And you don't need to make that face, right? It's just it is it is what it is, right? Uh, and many of them are non-pathogenic 
some of them are actually potentially pathogenic, right? The, you, you might find you, 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 know, you do a swab and it's like, oh, that's, uh, that could actually cause a nasty infection. But it doesn't because we have defense mechanisms like the skin in place to, to make sure that doesn't happen. Right? If you breach your skin, that can be a problem. That's why the first thing you do when you have a cut is clean it, right? It's open water. Clean it up. Anyway, um, speaking of which, so um, it is estimated that you have about 10 times the number of bacteria in your gut, right? In your, in your GI tract. 10 times the number of bacteria in, the, in your GI tract as you have cells in your body. Try to figure that one out. Okay, the reason the math works is because they're very, very small. Okay, smaller than our somatic cells. But it should start to cue you into the idea that eh, these guys might be a little important for some things, to the point where that specific example, um, we're almost calling the gut flora its own organ system now. And admittedly, we don't fully understand all of it, not by a long shot. We do know that it's quite important. And we do know that if your gut flora is messed up, you can get into some real big trouble. You can, can pr lead you to a lot of diseases. So discussion for another day. <coughs> All right, so what we're dealing with is essentially you know, uh, the tree of life. Uh, and you know, on the tree of life, you have domains and kingdoms. And uh, over here in blue, we have bacteria. We're going to see a number of uh, examples of those. These are archaea in the middle in red. Those are um, essentially a very old branch of bacteria-like organisms. And over here we have eukaryota. Does anybody know what uh, eukaryotic means? A cell is eukaryotic as opposed to prokaryotic. Eukaryotic cell means that it has a nucleus. So we've been talking, we were talking about human cells earlier, and they have a membrane, and then inside they have uh, a membrane surrounding a nucleus that contains the DNA. Okay, so all of our cells have that. You find us up here, right? We're animals, obviously, we're animalia, uh, right next to you, fungi and plants and slime molds, which all have uh, a nu a nuclei as well. Um, one of the significant differences between our cells and bacterial cells is that they don't have nuclei. Do bacteria have DNA? Yes. Yeah. All of these, all of these living organisms have DNA. All right. Um, we have we have a very very you know a, a common uh, common ancestry with uh, with basically everything that's living in some form or another. Uh, will if we go far enough back, you'll be able to find a common ancestor to every other living organism. Um, but the, the theme here and what allows life is that the code is all the same. Okay, the code is, is DNA. Yeah? Does it mean all the of them have um, the Well, the, yes, the vast majority of anything that's going to have to code for proteins is, is I'm going to have to put my foot in my mouth because there are a lot of organisms that I don't know a lot about. So my guess would be yes. But there could be exceptions to that. Okay, so let's talk about some of the basics, right? Some of uh, the common microorganisms we're going to be concerned with. Um, up here, right, we're seeing various types of bacteria, and and the, the we'll, um, we'll we're going to encounter many many species of bacteria along the way in our studies. Um, one of the first ways that you classify them is how they look under a microscope. 
Okay, so um, you can use uh, these words like a, a caucus. Okay, so a caucus refers to a bacteria that under the microscope looks spherical in shape. A bacillus is a rod shaped organism. Uh, and then vibrio means it's kind of wiggly. Uh, spirilla means it's spiral shaped. And then pleomorphic, that term means there are uh, several different sizes and shapes to it. Some, t uh, some bacteria uh, will exist uh, in groups. Okay, and so we'll give special prefixes to those. And these you'll probably recognize, at least some of them. Right? So uh, diplo. So that would, uh, in this case, what you're seeing here, diplo means two. And this example, you're seeing uh, diplococci, right? Because it's two spherical shaped bacteria stuck together. They exist in pairs. This you'll probably recognize, right? These are staphylococci. So you've heard of a staph infection, okay? What you're really talking about is staphylococcus, okay? And now there's subspecies, there's, say, you know, staphylococcus aureus, for example. So um, that's what they mean, is if you look at it under a microscope, it's going to look like clusters. You also have probably heard of strep, right? Strep throats. Strep implies it's a streptococcus. So it's chains of round bacteria. Okay, and there's a few others as well, but those are the, you know, those are the big ones, the big three that we're going we're to see. Um, down here, we've got some other examples. Down here is a, is a basic depiction of a, a virus. Uh, we're going to see a few examples of that uh, in a little bit. So let's talk more about bacteria. So bacteria are uh, single-celled living organisms uh, that are what are called prokaryotes. Again, we uh, and everything in whoop, this domain, right, in brown, they're all eukaryotes, which means have a nucleus, right? So nucleated, uh, they have an um, encapsulated nucleus. Um, so bacteria are prokaryotes, which means they don't have a nucleus, just that they don't have a membrane. They do, of course, have DNA. Right? So they, they have um, generally one long strand of DNA and some other little bits that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so they, in that way, they work very similarly to our cells in that they use that DNA to code for, they make RNA, they make ribosomes, they make proteins, the proteins do stuff and build things and they have metabolism and they use energy and they reproduce and they, they're living organisms. Okay. Um, the, I know we didn't talk about it, but when our cells divide, when you take a, a mature somatic cell, that's a, a non-sex cell, and non, anything that's not sperm or egg, and you have it divide into two identical daughter cells, the process is called mitosis. Bacteria have a similar process, but because they don't have a nucleus, it's different. It's called binary fission, which makes sense. Binary means two, fission means split. So, so it has its own process that is sort of mitosis-like in theory. Uh, that basically means it allows it to, uh, to divide rapidly and create two identical daughter cells. And they do this pretty rapidly too, right? Bacteria are notorious for dividing really, really quickly. Um, something that they have that we do not uh, is a cell wall. Okay, so bacteria, so our, our, uh, our cells will have that cell membrane, which we've talked about. It's, you know, phospholipids and cholesterol and some proteins and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so bacteria will have that, but then outside of it, they have this extra structure called a cell wall. Okay, so other, lots of other organisms have cell walls. Some fungi have cell walls. Uh, plants have cell walls. Um, they're all chemically different, but the, the, the 
theme is that it's a protective mechanism. So it's just one extra barrier that allows it some protection from its environment. And so the more robust the cell wall, the better it's able to survive in various environments. Okay, so um, bacteria, although they may do metabolically better in certain environments, say in, the, you know, in and around living tissue, by definition they don't necessarily need uh, to be parasitic, they don't necessarily need living tissue in order to survive. As long as they have the, um, as long as they have this, whatever they need, they have energy source and they have some heat, um, and they're not in an environment that's going to kill them, they can live and survive. So, for example, we can we can uh, culture bacteria, right? Uh, we can take a back, uh, do a swab, uh, take bacteria, and then put it on a an, what's called an agar plate, uh, which is just a, enough of it. It's not a living anything, but it's just a, a culture medium that gives the bacteria just enough of what they need to survive. You heat it up, you allow the bacteria to grow, and we can take a look and see what's there. Okay. Now, a uh, real basic depiction of what a bacteria might look like and some of the things that it might have. We're going to come back to this picture in a little bit. Uh, this is binary fission. Again, you don't need to know any details, just that one single bacteria cell, parent cell, will divide into two identical daughter cells. Each of those daughter cells will divide into two identical daughter cells, and so on, and so on, and so on. All right. Those are the terms we saw a minute ago. Um, so the first uh, um, definitions are based on uh, shape. So a bacillus, or plural bacilli, ha are rod-shaped. Spirochetes are, is the broader definition of, um, of the broader category of anything that's kind of wiggly or spiral-shaped. And cocci, or a singular coccus, are the spherical ones. And again, we saw that we have the, those, um, uh, <coughs> the um, definite, sorry, the categories of diplo, so two cocci stuck together, uh, strep, which is chain, good, and staph, which is cluster, good. All right, very good. Same slide as before. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the the, the bacterial composition. So, so they have a cell wall. So that, again, is something that we do not have. It's a protective mechanism for the bacteria. Um, there are, depending on the species of bacteria, they're going to have different chemical compositions of that cell wall. So it's going to be made up of different stuff. And that is going to give each bacteria unique properties and, and defense mechanisms um, and uh, protection from various environments. What it also gives us is uh, a potential for uh, a mechanism to kill that bacteria. So without going into uh, too much of the details, uh, this next slide here, what it's showing you in the blue is that we have antibiotics, right? Antimicrobial drugs, antibacterial drugs that are designed to interfere with or kill bacteria. And they don't all work the same way. You'll learn about this in your pharmacology class eventually. but um, they, they'll all have slightly different mechanisms based on what kind of classification of drug that, you know, they are. Some of them will attack bacterial cell walls. Okay? For example, uh, penicillin does that. Um, some will get into the cell and interfere with their metabolism. Some will get into the cell and damage their cell membrane. Some will get in and uh, interfere with their ability to reproduce. I, I certainly do not expect you to memorize those, so don't bother. 
okay? Um, but the point is, they all work a little bit differently. They give us different targets uh, of uh, different mechanisms of action of how we can potentially attack bacterial cells. And one of those is, well, if we have a certain species of bacteria that, uh, that a certain class of, of, uh, of drugs can, can uh, you know, damage their cell wall, that's something we can maybe use to our advantage when we're selecting a particular drug. Okay? Now, um, there are a bunch of different, uh, again, chemical compositions of walls, uh, of cell walls. We can um, start to classify them into some basic groups, and one of the common classification mechanisms is based on a, um, a, a staining procedure and a visual uh, appearance of cells, of bacterial cells under a microscope. It's called gram staining. Uh, so the way gram staining works is um, you take, uh, you take uh, basically a, um, a slide that you're going to put under a microscope and it's got a sample of, of the bacteria that you're trying to see and you can't see them unless you, you know, stain them to make them show up. So you apply a stain, and the first stain is a purple stain. And so not all bacteria will, uh, will take up that purple stain, but some do, and it has to do with the chemical composition of their cell wall. So all of a sudden, sometimes you can now see a bunch of purple bacteria on the slide. So they took up that first stain, they'll be considered gram positive. But not all bacteria will take up that stain. So we use a second stain, which is pink. Okay? And some bacteria, a good chunk of them, that will take up that stain. And uh, so they'll look pink under the microscope. They're considered gram-negative. And this is helpful because it helps us see more bacteria under a microscope. But it's also useful because um, the, it, it tells you that the chemical composition of those cell walls in those bacteria is different. Okay? So it can help you s start subclassifying uh, certain types of bacteria. And as we'll see a little bit later, um, some of those bacteria will have certain toxins based on what kind of wall they have. So don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, again, they do have cell membranes like we do in our cells. They're just that layer inside the cell wall. So they have multiple layers of protection. Uh, some other things that you might see. I'm going to jump back and forth between this slide and the picture a little bit. Um, you might see uh, an even more external protective mechanisms. So you have cell membrane, then cell wall, they all have those, and then they might, some uh, species might actually have a capsule outside of that, or sometimes called a slime layer. So it's just a further barrier that's outside the cell wall, it's another protective mechanism that uh, helps them survive in their various environments. Okay? Some bacteria will have flagella, we know what those look like, right? It's like a tail, yep. Uh, and that's for motility. So a bacteria that's able to move more, uh, more easily is more likely to survive. Okay. Other things you might see are um, fimbria or pili. Those are kind of interchangeable. Uh, fimbria uh, are essentially hair-like or finger-like projections off of bacteria. So I'm going to jump back here. That's a flagella, right? These are fimbria or pili. Okay? So the, the primary function of, of fimbria is adhesion, which means sticking to something. So if, uh, if a bacteria has the ability to stick to other cells or tissues, it's more likely to survive. OK? 
Okay, and so it's again, it's it's something, it's a mechanism that's going to allow them to to survive and reproduce more readily. There is another job, another something that the pili do, uh, but I'm going to come back to that a little bit in a couple of slides. It'll make more sense later. Okay, uh, so again. They have cell membrane, like we do, selectively permeable, like ours is. They have cytoplasm, as we do. So if mostly made of water, as our cells are, a fluid component inside the cell. Um, and then they're going to have a bunch of organelles that do jobs, just like our cells do, because they're metabolically active. They do have DNA, but it tends usually to be, as opposed to we have you know, robust, you know, huge amounts of DNA. Um, organized into 23 pairs of chromosomes, uh, bacteria usually have one long strand of DNA. Okay, so essentially you could call it one chromosome in a sense. Okay, but just like our cells, they have RNA. Um, it's, you know, it codes from that DNA, it, it, it transcribes from the DNA, and it gets translated through ribosomes and it makes proteins and it does all the stuff that the cell needs to do. Um, the last thing in this, or sorry, not the last thing, the next thing that, uh, and this is something that we certainly don't have, uh, are plasmids. So if the, um, if the most bacterial DNA exists in one big long strand of DNA, um, some bacteria can also have these separate small little DNA fragments. Okay? So they look usually like little rings. So like a little, just a short little snippet of DNA exists usually in a ring shape. They're outside of that, this is non-chromosomal, so they're outside of the rest of the big long strand. Now these are funny little things, okay? And uh, it's something that we certainly don't do. Uh, and it relates back to uh, these pili. So I said a minute ago, these pili or fimbria, these hair-like, finger-like projections, they're for adhesion. And that's mostly true, except some of them are also hollow, so they look kind of like a drinking straw, all right? And so they have another function, and the function of that uh, hollow pilus is to be able to exchange these little plasmids with other bacteria, okay? So when you talk about DNA transfer, when you talk about, um, right, whether it's our human cell or a bacterial cell or whatever, you have... Um, parent cell divides into two daughter cells, which should be identical, right? That's how cells divide. That's, and in doing so, there's a mechanism in place, which we really completely skipped over in the previous unit, I said to cross it out, uh, where you take the DNA that's in this parent cell, and you have to replicate it. So you have to double it up so that half goes into one daughter cell and half goes into the other, and they both of the daughter cells end up with the exact same DNA that the parent cell had, okay? That's vertical transmission of DNA. Vertical from generation to generation, right? And these ones will go to two daughter cells each, and so on and so on. It's all vertical transmission. What this mechanism here with these pili is, is called horizontal transmission. So horizontal between two already living, existing cells. So basically, two bacterial cells can connect with these pili and exchange not the big long chromosome, but these tiny little snippets of DNA, these little plasmids. Okay? 
Uh, and that's a very, it's a strange thing. But it allows the bacteria um, some, some interesting ways to evolve a little more rapidly. And I'll give you an example. Um, maybe uh, this bacteria here, um, it's got a plasmid in it that uh, codes, for, uh, uh, um, codes for a protein that makes that bacteria resistant to a particular antibiotic. Okay? And this one over here doesn't have that property because it's not part of its normal genetic makeup. This is kind of a one-off. This is something that it picked up somewhere along the line, and it was advantageous, so it kept it, and all its, its daughter cells kept it, and all you know, various generations of cells all have this now. And this might even be an entirely different bacterial species. It's possible. And all of a sudden, they connect through these pili, these little drinking straw things, and then they transfer horizontally from living cell to living cell this little plasmid, this snippet of DNA. So now all of a sudden, this second bacterial cell that never had that property before now has it. And so it's just essentially leapt forward uh, and developed this new property that it, it, it's never had before. Okay? So I certainly don't mean to say that that's how all antibiotic resistance works because that's not accurate at all. I just use it to illustrate um, an example of how traits can be transferred from one bacteria to another in some circumstances. And that's a property that our cells certainly don't have. Okay. Uh, next thing would be toxins. Okay, so some bacteria can make toxins. And what toxins do uh, is um, they essentially are usually chemicals that will be able to cause uh, cell damage or tissue damage in their environment. And that's advantageous to bacteria because when they damage tissue, you'll see later on that uh, if that, that'll, that'll, in a human or in, in many other animals, that'll set off an inflammatory response. And that means that there's going to be a whole bunch of fluid comes to that area. And that's actually a good environment for the bacteria to live in. Despite, I mean, it may sound confusing at first because that is part of our defense mechanism, but in the interim, tissue damage uh, is good. It's a good place for bacteria to live. And so toxins will intentionally you know, damage their surrounding environment. Now, <laughs> we have kind of two categories of toxins. Exotoxins, remember what does exo mean? Out, exit, right? And, and endotoxins, which means inside, within. So here we'll go back to the wall composition thing, so the cell wall. So usually those gram-positive bacteria, the ones that stain purple under the uh, gram stain, they'll often make exotoxins. So their DNA codes for it, they build it, and they release it. So it gets released into their environment. And it does its thing, it causes damage, etc. Gram-negative bacteria, the pink ones, will often uh, create endotoxins, which uh, are toxins, but instead of releasing them like exotoxins do, they just stick them in the wall. So they stick them in their cell wall, and then when that bacterial cell eventually dies, then they get released. And so this can actually have, uh, um, uh, this can create problems uh, because if we say, if you get an infection with a gram-negative bacteria, and through um, your own immune function or through administration of an antibiotic, for example, you start wiping a whole bunch of them out, all of a sudden, as they die, they release large amounts of toxins all at once, and you can have this secondary effect 
of, of the effect on your body of those now released toxins. Um, so one of the effects, for example, of those toxins can be that they are what's called vasoactive, which means vaso refers to uh, blood vessels. So vasoactive means the toxin can influence the size and shape of our blood vessels. So in this example, um, they can make our blood vessels dilate. So basically, if all your blood vessels dilate significantly all at once, what's going to happen to your blood pressure? Right? So you can end up with a type of shock. Anyway, uh, a lot more detail in another class later on. <clears throat> Same thing with enzymes, right? Bacteria create enzymes just as we create enzymes, and, and enzymes can often be uh, uh, built in order to break tissue down. So here the purpose is to cause local damage and, and break down, and again, similar to toxins, cause, uh, cause uh, local damage to a host, per se. Okay, uh, one last thing that bacteria can do that we don't is they can some, not all, but some of them can make uh, spores. So spores are, are something that um, can be released from a bacteria that's living. Um, they're, the best way I can describe them is they're kind of small, balled up, dormant versions of that bacteria. So they're um, much more protected than a live bacterium. So they're much more resistant to things that would normally kill a living cell, like a bacteria. So a spore tends to have the ability to live longer, right? It's dormant, it's not metabolically active, but it, it can become reactivated. Um, it can live longer, it can survive higher heat, it can survive you know, um, other things that would normally kill a living bacteria. So it's a survival mechanism, okay? Um, and so spores, for example, can be problems for us where, um, uh, you know, they can be found in places that, that uh, you maybe think something's clean and it's not because there were, there were spores on something. Uh, let's say you're um, in a hospital setting and uh, you have, um, I don't know, reusable instruments of some kind, okay? They're, they're not single use. It's something that's going to get used again. And um, you, uh, you just give it a quick wipe down, right? So clean it up. It looks clean. Fine. Meanwhile, uh, there are some bacterial spores present that uh, are, you know, resistant to your, you know, basic mechanism of cleaning. Uh, even maybe they might be resistant to some mild disinfectants, things that would normally kill living bacteria. And you think it's clean, and it's not. And now you have a spore there. It could become reactivated and could, you know, spread an infection to, to somebody else. So those kinds of things and the existence of spores uh, are why we have um, uh, more intense measures uh, to take to, to sterilize equipment. Right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Autoclave. Like an autoclave, exactly, where you use high heat and pressure uh, to, to essentially kill uh, anything that's, that's uh, present on a, on a surface, something that's going to be reused, including spores. All right. Uh, what's another good example? Um, tetanus, right? Uh, tetanus infection. Uh, tetanus is uh, is caused by uh, a bacteria. Um, how do you um, how do you get tetanus? Number one answer, right? Rusty nail. So, is there something? What what is special about a rusty nail that that uh, gives you tetanus? Yeah, it has nothing to do with the nail per se. It's not to do with the composition of the nail. All right? 
the, the, the rusty, the only reason that's relevant is because if you look very, very closely, say microscopically at a, at a, um, at a nail, a rusty nail is going to have little scallops and pock marks in it, right? Little pits where stuff could maybe live, like a spore. And this, the spores of uh, the bacterium Clostridium tetani happen to live in soil and stuff, and they can live a very long time. And so say you have a, rust, a dirty, rusty nail. It's not the nail itself that's the problem. It's picked up a spore at some point, and now you puncture yourself with it, and you've now introduced it into uh, a great environment for a spore to reactivate and create an infection. All right. Does fairly brief overview. Are there any questions about bacteria before I move on? We're going to see lots and lots and lots of bacterial infections as we go forward, especially into our patho classes later on. All right, let's talk about uh, viruses. So, as I said earlier, viruses are not technically a life form. Okay, they're not. They don't. They they are. They're not cellular. Right. They don't. They're not made of cells. They don't fit the definition of a living organism. What they are. Are, there are small obligate, so they must be, they're obligated to be, parasites. And this is a, is a typo. This should say intracellular, I-N-T-R-A. Now that implies what? Intra. Inside, exactly. So what happens is a virus, in order to do anything, it needs to introduce its, uh, its uh, nuclear material, which is DNA or RNA, so it depends on the virus, it could be either or. It needs to introduce its nuclear material into a living host cell. And that could be a human cell, that could be a bacteria, that could be uh, any number of living organisms, okay? But without doing that, it can't do anything per se, okay? But what it does is it basically it finds a way to introduce its DNA or RNA into a living host cell. That DNA becomes incorporated with the host cell's DNA. And then all of a sudden the host cell is reading the viral DNA and doing what it says to do, which is basically it says it's going to make proteins to build more viruses. So basically the virus is going to hijack the host cell's own mechanisms of, uh, of uh, transcription and translation to do the work of what the viral DNA says to do. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, so viruses can look very, very uh, different. Right? They, can, they're all, um, they all look very different. Uh, we'll classify some of them based on what they look like and how their, uh, their composition are, and classify them based on whether they're DNA or RNA, a whole bunch of different, uh, <laughs> different methods. Um, so just as a, I mean, obviously illustration, really kind of easy example, but they can look spherical, right? They can have little projections off them. They can look like, uh, this is an interesting one. This looks like a lunar lander, right? It's uh, called a bacteriophage. It's, uh, it means it's a, it's a virus that um, goes after bacteria. It literally is like a lunar lander. The DNA is up in this little capsule, this protein sheath. Uh, and it lands on the, on the bacteria, and then it injects its DNA into the bacteria, and it takes over and, and does its bidding, essentially. Um, this is one of the first viruses that was ever um, identified. It's called the tobacco mosaic virus. It's one that, um, that's uh, caused some damage to tobacco crops. This is a depiction of HIV, 
right, human immunodeficiency virus. We'll talk about that <coughs> later on. Um, anybody recognize that? These slides are a few years old, so when I put this up, it was more prevalent in the news. Sorry? It's a good guess. I'll, I'll pull that one up in a sec because that's more <laughs> currently relevant. Uh, that's Ebola. Okay, so it looks very different than those previous ones. Uh, I'll, again, since it's relevant, let's, uh, let's look up a coronavirus. <coughs> sorry? I'm sorry, Kenny. <laughs> Fair enough. Soon, soon. Uh, so, uh, corona, well, coronavirus, corona means crown or round, so it looks, uh, they're these very round-shaped viruses. Um, if you're not, if you haven't, if you're not sure why I'm pulling this up right now, uh, coronavirus is in, very much in the news lately. Um, SARS, all right, uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome was a coronavirus uh, that in 2003 there was an epidemic and it spread out of East Asia uh, and kind of a bunch of places all across the world, including famously Toronto. Uh, and so we'll talk about SARS in, again, I'm saying this a lot today, but we will. Uh, we'll talk about these in other classes. Um, but uh, this is in the news because there is a new coronavirus, a very SARS-like uh, virus that's been identified, that's been spreading across China. As this morning when I checked, there was 300 cases and six deaths. Uh, the real fear was right now is uh, um, before the, uh, just before the, um, the Lunar New Year, and so it's like the most popular time to travel in China, so it's, uh, it's feared that it's gonna spread more rapidly. It was originally thought, I, my understanding is, it is, came from contact with livestock, uh, but it's now been shown to be able to be transmissible. It's a respiratory virus, transmissible from human to human. It's really virulent, uh, like SARS was. It can be fatal even in healthy-ish people. Um, and then I got a news alert in my last class this afternoon that it's shown up in, in the States. So um, this is a current issue, yeah? The one that's in China right now, is it a it's not we SARS. Sorry. Right now, yeah. we are in outbreak, yeah. and it is the coronavirus. Yeah. Okay. We had a, a nose swab done. Yeah. And come back from it. Sure. Um, so there, a, there are there are um, many types of coronaviruses. Like I said, SARS is a coronavirus. It's not the only coronavirus. So there, yeah. So there are <laughs> lots. And if anybody's traveling lately, or I'm sure this will be in the news if you go and go home. Uh, or in the next couple of days, if you haven't noticed already, you're going to see it. Um, there have already been and will continue to be measures taken at airports. Anybody traveling from those parts of the world is going to be screened coming into the country, make sure they're not sick, et cetera, things like that, um, because you know it's a public health, it's a big public health problem. And quite frankly, uh, Ontario, as much as um, medical facilities, and particularly in Toronto, did a, were, you know, famously did a really, really great job in helping to identify the coronavirus associated with SARS in 03. Um, there was a lot of criticism afterwards for the pretty lackluster public health response, uh, and some things were learned from that. So um, hopefully we're getting better at that, and uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that can become a real big problem. Anyway, <coughs> that's a big aside. 
So, uh, in an active viral infection, like I said, they are intracellular parasites, which means they find a way to introduce their, their genetic, their nuclear material, DNA or RNA, into a living host cell. Uh, it, uh, it incorporates itself into the host cell's DNA, hijacks its internal mechanisms, its uh, organelles, its ribosomes to be able to make proteins and, and, and form new copies of uh, the virus and then they're released. So they're either released kind of actively into the, into the local uh, tissue or when the cell dies, it releases a whole bunch of them all at once and the virus spreads. Okay, and I won't belabor this anymore. This is just a, a uh, um, graphic depiction of what I just described. Are there any questions about that? Okay, fairly straightforward. Um, now there are, of course, viruses that don't necessarily consistently co uh, continue with active infection and reproduce and reproduce and reproduce. There are some viruses that can go dormant, so we call them latent infections. So they'll usually start as an active infection, do their thing, and then go dormant. And so they will essentially um, not do much of anything for a while, but they still remain. So they remain uh, in, uh, associated with their you know, host cells, and then they can become reactivated later on and reproduce and, and do their thing again. And the, one of the most classic examples of this would be a herpes virus. Uh, and the herpes virus, there's, there's a whole family of herpes viruses just the same way as there's a whole family of coronaviruses. Um, but the herpes viruses are notorious for, uh, for I mean, you can never, you can never really get rid of them because um, the, you'll have you go through cycles of active infection. So say with the herpetic lesions like cold sores or genital sores, and they'll have an outbreak, and then it'll go away. It'll heal. It'll subside. But the virus lies dormant in the in the host cells. It's usually a nerve cell of the associated tissue, either around the mouth or the genitals. And then under certain conditions, when the host immune system is not quite up to snuff, you're maybe a little stressed or tired or have an illness of some kind, or your immune system is compromised, and it becomes reactivated. And it does it again, and it goes away, and it does it again, and it goes away. And that's kind of the nature of a, a latent viral infection. Yeah. So would chicken pox be a latent environment because it, like when you're older, it's changed, you're like stressed or whatever? Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, so, um, Somebody who has uh, the chickenpox, the varicella uh, virus, you get the chickenpox. You have your, you know, you have your outbreak, and then it, uh, the the virus does some of it does remain in the body. It lies dormant, and then it be can become reactivated often later in life as shingles. It's a totally different presentation because it usually follows one nerve, right? One dermatome, for example, uh, but it's the same virus and similar lesions, right? They're herpetics or herpes-like lesions, which are these uh, red, itchy, painful lesions with a, um, a clear vesicle, right, and clear fluid that burst and then scab. Sounds a lot like any other herpes lesion. <coughs> all right. Next, again, this is a very brief overview of all of them. Next is fungi, okay? So fungi uh, are their own class of organisms. Uh, they are eukaryotic. So they do have nuclei. They have a cell wall like bacteria do, although their, their chemical composition is different. Um, fungi are all around us, right? They're, are, they're interesting because um, our bacteria, they're all single-celled stuff, right? Fungi can be single cellular. 
So they can be a single-celled yeast, for example, or they can be enormous multicellular organisms, okay, and then everything in between. Uh, and they're all over the place. Um, uh, in the grand scheme, um, very few fungi are pathogenic, as in disease-forming. Um, some can, um, but compared to how many fungi are out there, it's a, a relatively small number. Um, and of those small number of organisms that cause infection, most of them are superficial. So the vast majority of uh, fungal infections in humans are on the skin or mucous membranes, so this, this superficial stuff. You can get internal fungal infections of places like the lungs, but they're relatively rare and they're most typical uh, in people who have uh, a compromised immune system. So um, people who are uh, elderly or have AIDS or ha um, uh, are taking immunosuppressing drugs or have something like that going for them. Okay, uh, that is a whole bunch of single-celled fungi, right? A yeast is a fungus, right? That's thrush, okay? So um, it's not the best picture of thrush. I'll probably pull up a better one. It does, it does. That's a good one. Okay, that's thrush, right? So it's, a, um, it's an outbreak of, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, it's a, a fungal infection, right? So yeast. Um, who gets thrush? Babies, yeah. underdeveloped immune system, and okay, yeah, and yep, and the other big one is uh, people who have recently taken antibiotics. Okay, so um, again, uh, the um, Candida albicans, the uh, the single-celled organism, the yeast that, uh, that causes thrush, is part of your normal flora in your mouth. Okay? It's supposed to be there. But you have lots of bacterial flora in your mouth too. Okay? So let's say you get an infection of some other, you know, who cares, it's a skin infection, it's a whatever, it doesn't matter. You take antibiotics for seven to ten days and it's killing bacteria. And do antibiotics specifically target just pathogenic bacteria? No, they kill a bunch of bacteria that are that it, that you know uh, um, that are vulnerable to whatever drug that is, and that includes some of your normal flora. And so, if you wipe out a bunch of the good bacteria in your mouth, all of a sudden you have a wide open playing field for uh, this, which is not a bacterium and not affected by antibiotics, to say run wild, and you get a uh, thrush. Okay. Uh, same thing, uh, women can get this in the, in the vagina as well. It's the exact same organism, exact same triggers. Uh, what else? <clears throat> uh, let's talk about a few more. Um, histoplasmosis, we'll talk about, yeah, sorry. Yeah, and, and we're not even have that much left. Okay, yeah. um, histoplasmosis. Uh, that's something again, we'll talk about in patho. It's, it is one of the more significant fungal infections that can cause neurological issues. Uh, but again, uh, fungal infections are fairly rare and generally in people who are otherwise immunocompromised. Uh, let's talk about some that are, are actually more common. Okay? Um, I said that most fungal infections in humans are superficial. Right? They're on the surface, on the skin. So. Uh, we call those tinea. 
probably heard of some, if not most, of these already. These are not in your notes, so make sure you write them down. Okay? So we have Tinea. Okay, first one is up on the board already. Tinea pedis. So tinea means it's the fungal infection. Pedis means foot. So tinea pedis is athlete's foot. All right, so where do you get athlete's foot? Yeah, it's usually in showers and pools and, and things like that. And it's usually kind of between, on, around the toes. And it's this kind of red, crusty lesion. It's a fungal infection. Okay? That's a good one, too. All right. Uh, what else? This one you've probably heard of. Uh, tinea corporis. Although probably not by that name. Uh, the, prefi the prefix corp means body. Good. This is ringworm. Okay. Now, don't be confused. Okay. Okay. So that's ringworm. Nothing to do with a worm. Okay. It's a crappy name. All right. Tinea corporis is a fungal infection of body. Okay. So that's tinea corporis. As is that. And that. And that. Okay. Similar but different uh, part of the body is tinea capitis. What does capitis mean? Head, scalp, right? So this is called ringworm of the scalp. Again, not a worm, the fungus. So that, and that, and that, and that are all tinea capitis. Uh, it's uh, usually skin-to-skin -skin contact. Okay. Although I'll, I'll tell you that uh, it can it can also spread from one part of the body to the other in certain in certain uh, instances. Okay. And actually, this one is a good one. Uh, tinea cruris. C-R-U-R-I-S. That means groin. Okay? A-K-A jock itch. <coughs> okay? So, <coughs> if any of you have ever worked in healthcare, PSW, stuff like that, you've probably seen this. It happens a lot. People's like, ah, it's just like a skin irritation. That's a fungus. Which means the only way that's going away is with an antifungal cream. Okay, um, so that's, yeah, lots of different examples. Um, and going back to what you're saying about what we're talking about spread, um, it is advisable that if you have uh, tinea pettis, athlete's foot, that you're very careful when you're putting your underwear on because it can spread to the groin and become tinea cruris. Okay, and the last one, tinea unguium. What is that? Almost guarantee that many of you have seen this before too. 
nails. Okay? People seem to have it in their head that this is what happens when you get old. Okay? This is just old person nails. Alright? That's the fungal infection. Okay? Admittedly challenging to, uh, to treat. The rest of those are all straightforward in theory, topical cream for the most part. You, you don't want to take oral antifungals if you can avoid it. Um, you only take oral antifungals if you absolutely have to because antifungal meds are, are, have nasty side effects to human cells. So you want to treat these things with topicals, and it takes a while, uh, and something like this, that might not go away until the, the nail gets removed, right? It, it can be really persistent and tough to manage, but in theory, it's topical application, right? Um, there have been uh, media campaigns around this. Dad, There's a new one too, I couldn't find it, but. I'm not sure. It's a nail fungus infection. That's gross. No, it's nothing really. It's contagious, you can even spread it to other people. Mom, come here! Don't worry about it. It'll go away on its own. No, it won't go away on its own. It's an infection. You need a prescription. Nail fungus should be taken seriously. At the first signs, show it to your doctor and ask about prescription treatments that can be applied to the nail. That's a pretty mild one, but that's how it starts. Okay? All right. Any questions? Cool. Uh, next is protozoa. Uh, protozoa are um, eukaryotic single-celled organisms. They're always single-celled. Um, they are not bacteria. Uh, they are eukaryotic, they have a nucleus, they don't have a cell wall, and again, they only exist as single-celled organisms. A lot of them will have a flagella, so they have a tail for motility. Um, they can either live on their own, or they can, or some can be uh, parasites, as in they have to get access into a living host cell. And often the ones that are disease-causing, the pathogens, are often parasites. So let's talk about some that you are uh, some that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, malaria, that's a good one. You've all heard of malaria. Okay, now you ask people what causes malaria? What's the, here, let's use a term, the causative agent, okay, the causative agent of disease. So in thrush, right, when I say what's the causative agent of thrush? The answer is Candida albicans, the specific organism that causes thrush. Okay, what's the causative agent of malaria? Okay, people say mosquitoes, right? But mosquito doesn't cause malaria, okay? The mosquito is a vector. It's the way to transmit this single-celled organism, this protozoa, that causes malaria. Does that make sense? Okay. We'll talk about malaria in another class. Uh, trichomoniasis, anybody familiar with that? What kind of infection is that? What part of the body? Yep, that's an STI. Um, trichomoniasis, uh, <laughs> the thing that you probably not forget about it uh, is it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a typically vaginal infection and it causes a characteristically fishy odor. Uh, and this one, amoebic dysentery. So an amoeba is a single-celled organism, a protozoa. Um, anybody know what dysentery is? It's an old reference now, okay? But uh, some somebody might still get this. Uh, anybody heard of the, the old, old game Oregon Trail? No. 
Anybody ever seen the meme you have died of if you have died of dysentery? Nobody's ever seen this before? Okay. Doesn't matter. All right. <coughs> dysentery is violent bloody diarrhea. <coughs> that you can die from. So, um, amoebic dysentery uh, is uh, essentially um, you drink, it's often, you know, it, you can still get it. Uh, it was more common in days when there was, you know, not sanitation systems that are prevalent and stuff, but um, people that are camping or hiking or, you know, uh, uh, don't have access to clean water or whatever, they drink whatever water they have available to them without purifying it. There's these protozoa in it, and it goes through the GI tract, and it causes this brutal, violent, bloody diarrhea that can be really, really nasty, and even fatal. All right, again, the point is, it's a very graphic example, but they are all single-celled organisms, protozoa. Questions? Okay, <coughs> next. Um, again, these, so the next few things are, <coughs> not microorganisms per se. I said helminths. Helminths are worms, and there's lots of different kinds of worms. They're not microorganisms because they are not microscopic. Uh, as you'll see, they are small, and in, uh, usually small, and in certain graphic <coughs> cases, very, very big. Uh, but they're able to be seen with, uh, with the naked eye without a microscope. They could be tiny, 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 uh, or they can be a meter long, and they like to live inside your gut. So, <laughs> let's talk about them. All uh, worms, helminths of this kind, will have three stages in their life cycle. Uh, the egg stage, the ovum, to a larva, to a, a developed adult. And the adults will lay eggs, and then the eggs will you know, be spread. And so, the, the, um, you'll see the pattern here. Uh, most of these, uh, the pattern of spread is fecal contamination of food or water or something uh, because um, they, these things like, they can sometimes live in the respiratory tract, but they like to work their way into the gut. So they end up in your GI tract, and as the adult worms lay their eggs, the eggs come out, right? They get pooped out, and then if that happens to contaminate something and somebody else ingests it, then spread, all right? <coughs> so um, let's go through a few. Uh, pinworms. This is an this is a, a this is an interesting one. Um, so again, the uh, the starting of pinworms is actually usually inhalation. So um, and it's often in kids. It's actually more common than you would think in kids. Um, they start off by inhaling uh, the eggs. Um, and I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, what happens is they inhale the eggs and they get coughed up. Right? And if you cough something up, you cough up some phlegm, most likely you're going to swallow it, right? So cough it up, swallow it down. So now you've just spread it into the GI tract. So it works its way down the GI tract, and it likes to live there, right? The gut is kind of like, that's the, that's the home for a lot of these uh, worms. So <coughs> um, pinworms uh, will like to live in the gut, and they'll go through their life cycle, and they'll go through the egg to larva to adult to lay eggs to continue on throughout the generations. Um, pinworms are kind of unique in that uh, they, uh, does anybody know the, the test for if you, uh, if you suspect that a child has pinworm infection? Yep, yep, yep. It's called the scotch tape test. 
So what would make you suspect that your child might have pinworm infection? Maybe they might be, yeah, maybe, but, but not necessarily. I know what you're saying, but not necessarily. Um, scratching their butt, right? Itchy, 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 right? Uh, and so anyway, so the scotch tape test is uh, pinworms like to uh, come out at night. And when I say out, I mean literally out. They like to come out the anus. They'll stick their heads out, lay their eggs. <laughs> That face is fantastic, right? Come back in. <coughs> so, scotch tape tests. Now we're visualizing it. All right. It sounds worse than it is. Sneak up on your child. Scotch tape. All right. And see if there's eggs on it. Okay. How do you treat these? Can you treat these? Right. Yeah. Antiparasitic drugs. Yeah. Uh, but in a lot of cases, uh, people can have these infections for a long, long time and have no idea. And as you're right, uh, a, lot of, a lot of cases people will have no idea except that they'll eventually have this like just ongoing fatigue or lethargy or you know, have a hard time gaining weight no matter how much food they eat. And it's because these things are parasites. They like to live in your gut and parasitize your food. Okay? Which is, uh, by the way, uh, I'm going to skip uh, hookworms there and go to tapeworms. Uh, so tapeworms are, uh, if you're if you're getting introduced accidentally, and I'll qualify that in a second, uh, it's usually from undercooked pork. Uh, the caveat to that is some people will do this on purpose for diet purposes, right? So you'll go on the internet and you'll order a tapeworm and it'll come in the mail and you'll swallow it and it will go down in your gut and it will stay there and it will parasitize your food and you will get skinnier. And that's the motivation. I do not recommend it. <laughs> Humans. All right. Uh, next is hookworms. Uh, of the uh, of all these, most of them are ingested, right? So the pinworms can be inhaled, but then subsequently ingested. Um, hookworms are the exception. They can actually go through your skin, and it's mostly in tropical areas. Um, you're walking around. I had a patient last week that was uh, down uh, in Jamaica. And they were uh, doing volleyball, right? playing volleyball on the beach. And they were on their feet in the sand and ended up getting hookworm infections in, in, their, in their feet. Anyway, and then it works its way up through the bloodstream and it ends up in the gut. Uh, and the last one. Sorry? Yep, same, same deal, right? Uh, Antiparasitic drugs. And the last one is Ascaris. This is the, uh, the, the big visual you won't forget giant roundworm again fecal contamination of food or water you will see when we end up talking about the digestive system and infections in uh, anatomy or patho uh, fecal contamination of food or water is the typical theme of how you get any GI infection yep E. coli that kind of thing exactly yep so it's I mean it's uh, it's not particularly pleasant to think about but it is what it is uh, so that's is the inside of the large intestine. Okay, so this round and around, that is large intestine. That is not, right? That is a big worm. Uh, and these things have been known to grow up to a meter long. Okay, really quick, nice visual. They have to come out somewhere. This is how it can happen. And that's a lot of them, right? Yeah, that's pretty significant. 
Well, I'll talk about that another time. <laughs> just, just an intro class, right? We'll see it again later. All right, any questions? Do you want some more pictures? Are we good? Okay, perfect. Hopefully everyone's eaten. Uh, next, prions. So prions are, again, not a living organism. Okay, a prion is uh, essentially, I call it a misfolded protein. And it's a really strange thing. Um, so it, again, it's, it's, it's not living, it's not cellular, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, organic matter, it's a protein. And it happens to, uh, um, to, happens to create a problem, right? Because if you have a, a, a protein, a prion disease, they're often, uh, they can often be catastrophic, right? And they, um, the most well-known ones are neurodegenerative diseases, okay? So um, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, that's the human uh, version of this, okay? It's a prion disease. It's a rapid, brutal neurodegenerative disease which starts breaking down nervous system tissue, and the nervous system degenerates fairly rapidly uh, until death, Okay. Um, and variant Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is probably the one that you're more familiar with because it has another name. That's mad cow disease. Okay. They're very, very similar. They're prion diseases. And so, um, again, th this creates a problem because how do you kill something that's not alive? If you figure it out, then go get your prize because we don't have an idea any right now. Um, but these are, these are problematic. So how you get these is um, uh, contaminated tissue that you ingest. Uh, so uh, this means because it's a, it's a primarily neurological, um, uh, uh, it primarily affects the, the nervous system. If you get, um, uh, if you get th uh, that kind of tissue mixed in with food, it can, it can be spread and ingested that way. This is still the reason why, if anybody's donated blood recently, have they taken that question off yet? Have you lived in UK for X number of years and whatever decades it was? Last time I was there to donate, they still had that question. The reason that question is on there, uh, and if you lived in the UK within that certain period of time, it's because there was a break out of, an outbreak of uh, mad cow disease. Uh, and so we're still not accepting blood from people who were there at that time. Anyway, okay. <coughs> Uh, really briefly at the end, I know I mentioned this earlier, but resident flora means that you, it's, it's, part, it's um, bacteria and fungal cells and living organisms that live on you and in you and are, um, are totally normal, non-pathogenic, or right? they're <laughs> part of their normal makeup. Um, and as a just kind of visual, um, they're basically on all the external surfaces. They're all over your skin, they're all over your nasal cavity, your oral cavity, all throughout the gut. Anywhere else you have a mucous membrane and are protected from the outside environment, so places like the urethra and the vagina and the ears and other places that are exposed to the outside world. So it's everywhere. So don't be afraid of it. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely normal. Again, like I said earlier, a lot of these organisms are non-pathogenic. Some of them are opportunistic in that they can become disease-causing, but only if you allow them the opportunity, which means you know, you, you uh, break your, your skin barrier. So now you have a portal of entry, you don't clean it properly, and, and it can be introduced into the body that way. All right, so again, none of this stuff from this unit is on the next unit test next week, just units one to three. 
if anybody has any questions now, I'll stick around for a bit. If not, if you have questions uh, over the course of the week, email me. I'll get back to you as soon as I reasonably can. And uh, I will see you all next week.